0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 15th, 2017, the mean edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. We have recovered John Dickerson. We've recovered you, John. We missed you in Denver. Thanks for being back. Yeah, I missed you in Denver. I missed you because I wasn't in Denver. Um, It was was fun. The crowd, they enjoyed your occasional messages. Uh, That is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Of course, John is back, but now Emily has fled. But that's okay because Jamel Bowie, chief political correspondent of Slate, is here in her place. Hello, Jamel. Hello. On this week's Gabfest, we have too much to fit into the usual three-topic format, so we're gonna we're gonna uh, go rogue. We're gonna add a fourth topic. First of all, the ghastly shooting of House Majority Whip Steve Scalise and others at a congressional baseball practice on Monday. Then the double secret hide the birdie Senate health care bill. What health care bill? process that mitch mcconnell is unfolding on the hill then jeff sessions testifies about russia sort of while president trump contemplates firing special counsel bob Mueller. bob Mueller, who now reportedly is investigating the president himself for obstruction of justice also these two gentlemen of virginia john and jamal both native sons of the commonwealth will Ponder the significance of Virginia's gubernatorial primary plus love we'll cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, is Megyn Kelly wrong to interview Alex Jones of InfoWars? Steve Scalise, the House Majority Whip, a Capitol Hill police officer, a congressional aide, and a former aide were all wounded by a shooter at a baseball practice in Alexandria on Wednesday morning. They were uh, There's an annual congressional baseball game. The Republican team was out practicing shooter who apparently checked to see whether in fact those practicing were republicans opened fire and badly wounded scalise and and uh, also wounded these others and was then himself killed by police officers either by capitol police who were there protecting scalise or potentially by the local police who were the first responders on the scene the shooter had been a bernie sanders supporter and was of course a tr- critic of donald trump he also had a History of unsteady employment, of domestic violence, and sort of general domestic trauma in his life. um John, right after this shooting, there of course were was uh, I mean, there's a lot of sadness and worry and and uh, concern on Capitol Hill among congressional members who rightly were outraged by this. Uh, and there was also calls for unity. Do you think there is unity that's going to come out of this?
1: <clears throat>
2: well, uh, as you say, it's a. I mean, it it's horrific because if think about it you're out there you're playing baseball it's like a pause in the normal kind of washington thing and then there's this uh, you know 50 rounds i think were fired off um i don't i think the the focus on the rhetoric is uh, is kind of is fine but I just, it feels so Which inadequate the, well the, there's been a lot of talk about well you got to tone down the rhetoric and there's got to be unity and that feels like such a tiny little pinprick in the larger question and as i was thinking about this i went back to the show we did i don't know it feels like two years ago now where you um had a list of i think it was 10 to 12 things that keep washington from going forward that add to the frustration and impotence everybody feels about washington Oh, so obviously the chain of causation you have to be quite careful but um because that chain may not exist but um uh, you listed the things in the system of the way that politics works that leads to the frustration uh, that and the, and, the, and the and the thing that people are trying to solve by talking about rhetoric and unity and that system is all still there, all of the way we act in politics and the way we talk about politics and the way, in fact, people reacted to this are all is all there. Rhetoric and unity talk s- seems totally insufficient to the to the bigger problem.
0: Well, but also isn't the bigger problem, Jamel, that Guns are accessible to Americans in ways they aren't accessible to people in other places with political systems which may have disagreements in them
1: i mean I, th- I think that's uh I think that's unquestionable I'm sort of almost immediately after the shooting um and especially after we learned more about the background of the shooter uh there was you know people were drawing a link between the um sort of anti trump rhetoric and these guy's viol- these guy's actions and so on and so forth, and I always find those sorts of things. Very tenuous, right? Lots of people feel very strongly about many political things, but a tiny, tiny minority of them go and shoot up congressional baseball games. So so tiny, in fact, that this is the first time I think this has ever happened. So – Perhaps the question here isn't what this guy's political beliefs were, but something else that maybe hasn't come with other shooters. The thing that keeps on coming up in these events is how the shooters in question often have been arrested or cited or something for domestic violence, for violence against women, for violence against children. The twin kind of dysfunctions in our society, both the degree to which we still, I don't, I don't think have the open and honest conversation about domestic violence that we ought to. And we still don't have the open and honest conversation about guns that we ought to. And when those things intersect, right, violence is inevitable. Um, so I'm a bit frustrated by how this has immediately become about, um, sort of partisan political rhetoric when I think, and, and there's no question that, um, that there are problems although i wouldn't really center it so much on anti trump rhetoric as as i would in sort of the almost apocalyptic rhetoric about politics um and about sort of you know uh, people as enemies as this is a war that you see um i i tend to see it most in kind of far right media but it's it's in a lot of places but i think the the bigger problem is that we have <laughs> this country has a domestic violence problem and it has a lot of guns and uh, we want to pretend like none of those things um, uh, really influences this when it seems to me that those are the prime things at question. Well, of
0: course, those are the prime things at question. On the other hand, they, there are tons of people who are being killed. There have been how many uh, mass shootings in the United States in, in the last five years? I mean, it's in the thousands, but they haven't been political shootings and this is a political shooting. So isn't it but is reasonable? It a, is is it, it
1: is it a political shooting or is it a shooting that involves political actors? Because those are two different things. We don't know. We do not actually know if the, if the shooter in question uh, said to himself, I'm going to purposely target Republican congressmen.
2: Well, there is a little bit of evidence of that. I mean, okay. there's – he's – you know, he apparently – or we, <clears throat> there's the congressman who he, who was leaving the game who thinks he met with him and, they, and he said are these Republicans. Yeah, I, I remember
1: seeing – and there's like the, – like, there is disputes about whether that was the guy. right? Yeah.
2: Uh, but he also had a – you know, he was an activist and, and – so this isn't to draw the link, right? Yeah. This was a – I mean, we – most of the time in political shootings uh, or not most of the – but a lot of time going all the way back to Garfield and – Kennedy, you have a person who's mentally disturbed who happened to shoot politicians. Right. Like there's no, there's no link. But to the extent that it's an occasion, I think there are But what two... do you mean
0: that by that they happen to shoot politicians and there's no link? So, do, there is a link. There's a, so, they shoot politicians. They don't right, shoot no, the other James, people next to the politicians. But
2: Lee Harvey Oswald – right. But Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't angry at Kennedy for all the reasons that Kennedy was being protested when he went to Dallas. When he went to Dallas, uh, there were protest signs that called him a traitor. Oswald was uh, like a flirting socialist who would have been even more of a traitor than Kennedy was by the by the criticisms that Kennedy got. So there two things were happening in parallel. There's obviously something about a politician and the fame of a politician that attracts a person who's mentally disturbed. But the question is whether that's like what attracts someone to shoot John Lennon or whether it's actually a direct line. I have a set of political beliefs and I want to carry them out yeah. by shooting this person. That's different. And then, and most of the time or a lot of the time, I'm thinking George Wallace, JFK, Garfield, Gabby Giffords, there's, there's an absolute disconnect between mental health. Reagan, precisely, the, between the mental health and the political argument. So it seems to me you have two argument, two parallel arguments here, uh, and trying not to connect them. Um, but this is one in which the you know he obviously was. This was a highly motivated political person, and the and what they did was in more in parallel with what their politics were than in all those other instances I mentioned.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would also say that this is less like, this didn't seem like a fame-seeking assassination attempt. This was a, he probably didn't know it was Steve Scalise out there. I mean, I don't think there isn't, you know, you cover politics, you probably couldn't pick Steve Scalise out of a lineup. I mean,
2: I could, but that's, (laughs) that's
1: I could pick Steve Scalise out of a lineup.
2: But can we, what's like, so what's to
0: be done? Um... You're looking at me. Yeah, I have nothing. I mean, I don't. I don't. Th- I think this is a uh, anomalous incident, and unfortunately, it will mostly be used for people to reinforce whatever narrative they yeah. want to yeah. have. And I don't think we're on the e- cusp of an epidemic of political violence. I wouldn't think.
1: The most I think this does is it it illustrates background conditions in our society that result in these eruptions. Um and even if necessarily, you know, even if changing those background conditions doesn't necessarily prevent this particular event, it is the case that the intersection of um, you know, domestic abuse, uh, gun violence, and uh, that is that is a societal wide epidemic that we could do things right. about, right. even if it doesn't prevent. But we this will particular... choose, we will,
0: and we will choose not to in yeah, this we've... case because it is particular that will be. This is
1: about politics, it's... right? Right? Exactly. Exactly, and that's that's sort of that's part of why. I I am I want to push back against this notion that this is this shooting is primarily about politics. Because I'm not A, I'm not sure that it is. And B, I, I do think that obscures um uh some of the more important elements of this person's life and um this particular event.
2: So I think that can be true. But if it if it illustrates if it illustrates the background conditions and part of the background dis- conditions is the sense of frustration that people have had. Uh, we've seen it both on the left and the right. In this case, it's somebody frustrated on the left with, uh, you know, where they are basically encouraged to take matters into their own hands by the frustration they feel. The question is whether the background conditions, it's so hard to have this conversation because you don't want to go so far because you don't want to, I, I don't want to draw linkages that don't exist. But if it is the if it is the occasion um, uh, for this conversation, it seems like the question of rhetoric and unity is just, not suited to the moment what needs to be fixed if this is an occasion to have this conversation about what's happening in the background is the the system that creates that sense of frustration um, where people feel like there is no process for um, for advancing their cause if they're not in the majority Um, and that frustration is just not going away by you know using better words and having uh, more unity events and So it feels like in some ways when we, and I'm sure people are frustrated hearing us talk about this, these moments never really get to root causes, maybe in part because, you know, there are 50 different root causes that people would single out. And the fact that nobody can agree on root causes and can't even have the conversation about root causes sort of embeds the frustration in the system that, you know, is maybe part of all this.
0: This episode of the Gap Fest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GabFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GabFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. When the House passed its version of the American Health Care Act a few weeks ago, President Trump valorized it in a very festive Rose Garden ceremony. This week, however, in a private meeting as he angled to get a Senate bill passed, He called that same House bill mean. What the Senate is planning to do to make it less mean, to make it sweeter, your guess is as good as mine, since Senate Republicans have been writing a bill in secret and are planning to vote on it without any public hearings, possibly without any CBO score in a mad rush, perhaps in less than three weeks from now. This, of course, after complaining about the Obamacare process, which was vastly longer, which was epochal, which was geological. But in comparison, I never ascribe any reason or logic to anything that Donald Trump does. However, I always ascribe reason and logic to anything that Mitch McConnell does, even when he takes his wife out to dinner, whatever he orders. I'm sure there's a plot behind it. Uh, so, Jamel, why is Mitch McConnell doing all this in secret?
1: I have a, a few, I guess, a, a little bit of conjecture uh, about why Senator McConnell is doing this in secret the first is that I think I genuinely think he and the Republican majority feel that they have to pass something you know for the past seven years they've been saying they would repeal and replace Obamacare repeal and replace Obamacare they have made this major commitment to their to their base voters at least um, and I think they feel an obligation to do it where where it gets interesting right is that they promised to repeal and replace Obamacare. They would replace it with something that provided uh, ch- cheaper health insurance, more options, so on and so forth. But the bill in question, um, according to the uh, latest CPO score, w- would leave the United States at 23 million more uninsured people than under kind of the status quo as it stands. And so the, the bill itself doesn't really fulfill any of the promises or any of the um, – Substantive promises beyond repeal uh, and replace that the Republican Party has made over the last seven years, and so it, mystif- that, it mystifies me why that is sort of you know not not being considered. The second thing that I think is happening here. It's June now. Um, we are five months into the Trump administration and this unified Republican government. And what actually has been done outside of um, some regulatory changes and some executive orders and some minor pieces of legislation? There has been no marquee legislation from this White House or this Congress. And I think we're and we're reaching the point right in the calendar where it becomes incredibly difficult to do so. Not just because. Um, uh, there's you know crises come up and there are other priorities, but that we're getting closer to elections. Uh, lawmakers are, are feeling more nervous about taking major action. Um, uh, pretty soon, the, the window window will be shut, and then you have you know, <laughs> you have this radiation in the background that, that is the Russia scandal, that is everything with regard to Trump's personal problems, and so I think mm-hmm. that is really putting heat on Republicans to fulfill this promise they made and to do something. Now, with all that said, I think it is important to emphasize that the secrecy involved, both on the House side and now on the Senate side, is really quite remarkable and I'd even say radical. It is is outside the bounds of how lawmaking is normally done. The notion that uh, Republican lawmakers in both chambers would, without... CBO scores, public hearings, expert discussion—without any of that stuff—pass a bill that would restructure one-sixth of the American economy, affect millions of lives, um, arguably some for the worse. That they would do that in secret—it is sort of, <laughs> it is procedurally democratic because they're elected lawmakers. But I think it's substantively anti-democratic. There is no theory of democracy uh, that I can I can think of under which that kind of action passes muster. So I would call this sort of radical procedural moves on behalf of uh, an agenda that I'm not even sure that many of these lawmakers are that committed to. And it's sort of, it's all path dependency. And McConnell just happens to be a very talented legislative strategist and tactician and knows how to make this happen as quickly as possible.
0: What is this weird murder-suicide pact where it's like they they have to kill Obamacare and then they have to pass a bill, which is going to be catastrophic? Both for them and for the right. the public, but I mean, because they've committed to it, because they've made this right. commitment.
2: Well, there's a chance that it's also an attempt at sort of a hot stove moment. And so, in other words, this is what is being demanded by uh, the Republican base. You're in the majority. Stop futzing around and pass this. They go through and do it this way. It fails. And then they have. Then they get to go back and try and do it once they've seen the failure. But this is the. This is what's being. Called for by the President, and uh, I think largely by the most active voices Wait, in the grassroots, which this? is which is um, kill Obamacare and do it by whatever means necessary. So in other words, you have to do this, let it fail. This was John Boehner's theory a lot of time. Now it doesn't always work <clears throat> because you take a big hit by um, essentially repeating the behavior that you criticized in the Democrats and President Obama not just specifically on the affordable care act although as you pointed out david there were months and months and months of bipartisan efforts to try to make a bill that would pass uh, with republican votes um so mcconnell's just repeating in a way the kind of rushed uh approach that they criticized obama for which does seem to have a cost if this is being if this is an attempt to do something have it fail
0: and then go go the right way there is it's not uh pain-free so Jamel, i mean john's As John lays it out, they're not necessarily even thinking they're going to win. It is a there is not a single state in the country where this bill uh, has more than 38 percent support. It has majority support nowhere in the country, which means that any senator who votes for it is is voting against the interest of a majority of their constituents. And senators generally don't like to do that. Even, you know, even senators in relatively safe seats don't like to do that. So do you think it is possible that that this is a bill that will get – managed to get all 52 or will get 50 of the Republican senators on board just because it is so essential even though it's hated?
1: That's the question. The majority of people in in, (laughs) – the last time I I checked, it was about 17 percent of Americans approve of this bill. I don't think that the Republican lawmakers in question are necessarily responsive to – The broad public in their states, right? And there's a lot of political science research on this, that public opinion influences lawmakers, uh, influences senators and House and Congressmen, but they are more influenced by, um, you know, organized pressure by groups that have high preference intensity. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are groups that have high preference intensity for this bill, who demand that Republicans repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And they constitute uh, much of the Republican base. And I think more importantly, they have shown a willingness to kill the careers of lawmakers who don't act in their particular interest. And so, Yeah. You know, most Kentuckians do not want this bill. And if Rand Paul were responsive solely to the interests of the majority of Kentuckians, then he he should vote vote against it. But Rand Paul isn't just responsive to them. He's responsive to donors. He's responsive to donor networks. He's responsive to interest groups, ideological formations. He's responsible to a whole phalanx of different interests in in the broad sense. And, um, A lot of them want this bill. Can we talk just a minute about the president's calling it a mean bill
2: coming out of the house? There's not only the obvious um, uh, change of message from the person who had the Rose Garden ceremony celebrating the house bill, but um, by characterizing it that way, he pulls it totally onto democratic turf, which is the Democrats want the evaluation of any of this legislation to be measured in terms of compassion and words like mean. And the president also said, whatever passes will be generous, kind, and with heart. And this re-excavates re, um, uh, uh, a, a tension that was always with his view on health care, which is that as he campaigned and even as president, he kept promising more generosity in compassion terms. Everybody's going to be covered. Quality is going to be better. Cost is going to go down. And the problem is that kept running into reality, not just reality reality, but then reality of the actual bill as it had to be put together. And yet he kept using those terms. Finally, he and, – and Paul Ryan, by contrast, uses and the others supporting the legislation use use other terms. They argue that freedom and choice drives down costs. They, they basically talk about the system um, and, and the inequities of the previous system, which is different turf to fight on than – compassion turf the president by pulling it back on compassion turf then is arguing against cause it then gives more weight to the arguments democrats are making which is this is going to deny coverage that's neither generous kind or nor with heart or it's going to uh, raise uh, costs and perhaps kick out of the system people with pre-existing conditions that's neither generous kind nor has heart Um, and it's going to end the um, medicaid expansion which hurts uh, the poorest so and also he did it in a kind of pithy way the word mean is very easily uh, turned around so that actually it seems to me was a was a a significant blunder and I'm sure the house Republicans are um, unhappy with him for it. Not, I'm sure
0: I know they are. I don't know. I mean, Trump says so many things and he doesn't mean any of them to use the word mean in a different way. And therefore I'm sure this will be used against them in some fashion, but, but one of the many punishments that Trump has done is he's, he's voided the utility of language. It's no longer
1: (laughs) relevant. At least least a presidential rhetoric. Um, so but Jamel, in an off your
2: election where the Republicans are going to get tied to their president, yeah. the words of their president are not unimportant.
0: Uh, so, Jamel, speaking of sort of groups that can mobilize and highly activated groups, you would think that the left ought to be. I mean, every single organization, in the medical establishment opposes this bill, every single one, I think. And there are certainly very angry uh, people, you know. Anyone who has a pre-existing condition, people with disabilities, people who have addiction, people who you know old people, young people, poor people, people of all sorts who are this bill will affect and and damage and who are uh, who ought to be mobilizing, why are they not mobilizing more effectively in the way they did with the house bill
1: so the thing about the House bill, right is that although it was it was crafted in secret, it was given to the public some time before it went up for a vote. Um, and so that gave opponents time to mobilize, time to pressure. House members are holding town halls. There is a way to go about it. Mitch McConnell seems to have, frankly, learned from the House experience. There's a very small group working on the bill. They're not talking about it. Not, they've, they've never, they have yet to present any sort of information about what is exactly in it. There are reports that their offices are just not responding to phone calls, to, to letters. I mean, it's it's a locked-down process. This is what I mean when I say that it's in a really critical sense, an anti-democratic process. It's a process that is specifically designed to cut out public opinion and public response and, and sort of cut out democratic deliberation. There are activist groups. There are advocacy groups that are working very hard to, to sort of persuade whoever they can to vote against it. There's pressure on Senate Democrats to – do something to obstruct the process, whether that's sort of withdraw consent for everything going on in the Senate. Um, and the pressure there has been great enough that Democratic senators have felt com- obliged to explain why they're not doing that. Um, uh, and the short answer is that uh, they don't think it would make really any difference to how Republicans would behave. It might even strengthen Republican resolve to pass something that's debatable. This is in part a function of the process, seemingly designed to circumvent uh any kind of, I'll put this way, to insulate Republican senators from public pressure.
0: Jamel, is there a way that opponents of this bill are going to be able to make the supporters of it pay a price after, assume it becomes
1: law? I think Democrats will be able to make uh, Republicans pay a political price for this uh, in next year's midterm elections. I think among some Democratic policy thinkers, and I haven't spoken to any, any lawmakers about this, but I would imagine among some democratic lawmakers, let's say it's 2021 and there's a democratic president and a democratic Congress. I guarantee you there will be heightened pressure for that Congress to just pass a Medicare for all bill or a Medicaid for all bill to say, listen, listen, there is no good faith negotiation here anymore. Yep. There's no reason to do it. We already know how Medicare is structured. It's actually not that difficult to craft a piece of legislation that opens up Medicare to everyone or expands Medicaid to everyone. So just do it. Um, Assuming the pendulum swings and Democrats win power, what Republicans are playing with here – is sometime down the road, essentially turning the constituency for a truly universal, single-payer, nationalized healthcare system, making that constituency most of the Democratic Party, and then giving them a pathway to doing it. Right.
0: It's the height and the contradictions.
1: Argument. Right. I
0: would just like to end on the note that in other countries, they don't spend 80% of their political time talking about healthcare and fighting about it. I would like to live in a country like that.
1: The Second World War destroyed their countries and they could build one from scratch. (laughs) And actually, before we
0: leave this topic, I want to call out a new podcast from Slate, which is called Trump Care Tracker, which features Slate's congressional reporter, Jim Newell and business and economics columnist, Jordan Weitzman. And they dig into the GOP effort to reform health care. Uh, with short episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I think we're going to tack one on at the end of our show. So stick around at the end of today's show, and you can hear from Jordan and Jim as part of Trump Care Tracker. There was so much news on the Russia Mueller Sessions front this week. It's so much, so much to uh, encompass. First of all, Attorney General Jeff Sessions testified after a fashion before the Senate this week condemning attacks on his character, but declining to say much of anything about his conversations with the president regarding the Russia investigation or the firing of Jim Comey's FBI director. He made an implicit claim of executive privilege, a claim that the president himself had not claimed and the Senate did not really challenge him or order him to answer questions. And so he was able to get away with it. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Trump allies were floating the notion that he was considering but had been talked out of firing Bob Mueller, the special prosecutor. And then come Wednesday night, a scoop in the Washington Post news that Mueller is investigating the president for obstruction of justice, which is not really a huge surprise given everything we've heard. But still, the idea that the president is under criminal investigation personally, is uh, that's an interesting thing to be happening. So I think the, the line coming from conservative Jamel is there's no evidence of collusion No, there's no evidence that there's been collusion with the Russians. And all that's being investigated is this is this obstruction of justice, which is trumped up because of this collusion investigation for which there is no actual fire. What's wrong with that argument?
1: What's wrong with that argument? And I would say I think some Democrats are responsible for this argument being in the air because they talk about collusion uh, not infrequently. But what the problem with the argument is that the collusion part is a bit of a red herring, right? The, the, the focus of the investigation or the focus of the, the broad inquiry is to what degree was the Russian government involved in the American election, and, and who, what, what, individuals that involve, what processes that involve. I actually think that there's probably little chance that there is like direct collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. So that's that's sort of – for me, that's that's beside the point. The question is, who was doing the hacking? How did these hack materials get out? And there are sort of subordinate questions. And so there's all these weird sketchy ties between people like Paul Manafort and Carter Page and the Russian government who may have been doing their own thing unbeknownst to Trump or, or, or whatever. So there's that's kind of, for me, what this is all about, and those are kind of questions worth answering and getting to the bottom of regardless of what it means for Donald Trump's personal political fortunes. Now, of course, the reason there's an obstruction of justice investigation is because Donald Trump is obviously very stressed out by this um, and took several actions, including firing the FBI director that he then attributed to trying to get get ahead of this on national television in an interview with Lester Holt. So, you know the notion that the obstruction of justice investigation is somehow trumped up uh to uh, use the term is is silly because we all witnessed we <laughs> we all watched the President say on national television that I fired Director Comey because of this Russia investigation, whether or not there's collusion, that happened, so the president was obsessed with
2: being cleared. From the collusion investigation and that obsession landed him in the center of an obstruction of justice investigation, which is now more real than or has more real public evidence, uh, not to say that the case is closed by any means. <clears throat> but has – because I think you can make a case right. based on the Comey testimony uh, that actually gets the president off the hook. But there is definitely more in the public s- sphere and the president is now at the center of this, invest- this uh, obstruction investigation. He is the author of his fix that he's in. Where the White House was helped this week and where the Democrats seemed confused was if you're going to try and prove collusion, Jeff Sessions is actually not in – Like he's not in the first several rings, as Jamel said. There are others who, if there is a collusion story at all, and it still seems by public evidence pretty murky. Jeff Sessions with three meetings with the Russian ambassador was not the author of a strategy that was going to throw the entire election. Now, maybe it's a possible inroads and an investigative door that might be open that leads you to something else. But in public hearings, the Jeff Sessions was there uh, and his most important role was explaining the obstruction question. Now, as David pointed out, he asserted preemptive executive privilege. Which if the ball were bouncing in the normal way, he'd be accused of of contempt of Congress, I should say, as Eric Holder was was accused of that. And then uh, the Senate would do something about it and they would actually formally charge him. And then the president would have to assert executive privilege and then the courts would have to work it out. But that's unlikely to happen because Republicans control Congress. Although to touch on David's favorite theme, Congress, you know. They are a separate branch of government. They should get answers to questions that they ask, unless, of course, there are, you know, there's a system for adjudicating when the questions Congress wants answered infringe on other rights or other powers in the Constitution, and you should play that out, so that Congress doesn't become a supine uh, branch of government. Too late. Yeah, <clears throat> but um, but the biggest challenge this week came from the story that uh, Mueller is look is investigating the president and is interviewing the director of national intelligence, director of the National Security Administration Agency, you would wonder or you would imagine or it seems coincidental that as the stories are being leaked about the president firing Mueller, there is this information that now comes out that Mueller is investigating the president, which normally the way you would read that in Washington is those leaks came from Mueller's camp, except that he seems pretty righteous in his career of not being a leaker, and therefore, you probably you could also say those stories came from the people at the DNI and NSA, who got the request from Mueller to have Rogers and Coates testify. So that seems to me to be the biggest problem for the president. He got through Sessions um, uh, pretty cleanly.
0: You know what? To me, the most shocking part of this whole thing is, which we never even talk about because you just you allow Trump to do whatever. You know, tr- the rules for Trump are so different is that Trump and the attorney general have apparently not sought any to know substantively at all. They are not substantively curious at all about what a f- an enemy government did to destroy, damage, and undermine the democratic process in the United States and the sacred electoral system. These are people who who are who spend – I mean Trump spent all this time demonizing elect- voter fraud and set up a voter fraud commission and is like concerned with this – illusory problem of nobody, you know, people casting fraudulent votes, which doesn't happen and yet have not evinced like one moment of curiosity about a Russian interference. It's pretty incredible.
2: Just to build on that, Jeff Sessions opened his statement by saying how important it was to get to the bottom of the Russian interference in the election question and then said he wasn't briefed on it from the time the president was elected to the time he recused himself from the investigation. That's that does seem to be um, – and oh, by the way, there are stories this week that, that the Russians tried to hack
0: every single yeah. state. Yeah, they got into 39.
2: And they're prosecuting – and his Justice Department is uh, – has charged a woman with leaking secrets about how the Russians were hacking the election. The the lack of curiosity and censure. I mean the, the president has not said a harsh word. Oh, I mean the, in passing about the Russians – his administration is doing things but he hasn't in in a way
1: that's really uh that does it's the big question mark that hangs over this that disinterest it's weird it's it's weird and I don't know I don't I don't really know what you attributed to other than maybe there is something there
2: what's well, a- Well, some people, I guess, would attribute to the idea that uh, President Trump has financial ties in Russia that are closely linked to the governing, you know, uh, the rulers there and that that's hanging over his head and that that actually exists totally separate and apart from any questions of collusion. Yeah. One other thing I would say is to just to put a button on the Sessions testimony. The the other reason it went well is that Sessions had every reason to be furious about what he was furious about, which was that like there was this suggestion of a third meeting which was mentioned but then couldn't be addressed in open session. It had to be done in closed session. Like that's not – that's not the way it should work, that people get to kind of float rumors about you in the official setting hearing room uh, that Comey did. And so he was on – Totally solid ground uh, in in his outrage. Now, of course, he was he was playing it for the cameras, but um, <laughs> but but allowing people and allowing a forum with all of the official patina that a that a congressional hearing hearing has to kind of float that there's some mysterious reason out there about about Jeff Sessions. Uh, you is, know,
0: uh, you know, when you have lied on on a form, when you've lied on a form, a disclosure form about your contacts with. Uh, foreign governments i think you lose some of the high ground i think you you are standing on a slightly lower summit than you might be had you not lied about these meetings previously
2: whether that's true or not it doesn't address what what the responsibilities of the people who hold the hearings and who speak at the hearings not to just kind of float rumors
0: sure no there's some by all means but it it, it, and i'm not one i don't believe like that that because someone else has degraded themselves and misbehaved that you therefore have the right to degrade and and further corrupt the process But Jeff Sessions' level of righteous indignation about the attacks on his character, I found to be unmerited given the fact that he had effectively perjured himself on documents where he was uh, supposed to disclose his contacts with foreign officials. Final question on this, why, Jamel, did they float this idea of firing Mueller? Was it not really an idea they were floating? Was it it something the White House was that people in the White House were like, we got to get this out so that Trump knows he can't do it? Um, or was this part of a strategy, do you think?
1: I think it's much more the, the, the former, getting this out so the president knows that he cannot do it and that this is a bad idea rather than any kind of grand strategy. We kind of know from inside accounts, from, frankly, our own two eyes, that the president uh, is impulsive, to put it lightly, and often is driven um, by instinctual reactions to things to take major action. Given that, I think the... the, the odds that he would try to fire Mueller were actually pretty decent. And so leaking that and sort of having a public reaction or just even a press reaction might have been enough to keep him from doing that. But given that we know how much the, the entire Russia investigation frustrates him, uh, makes him angry. I think this morning on Twitter, he called it a witch hunt, the greatest witch hunt uh, in American history. That That's not the exact terms, but those words were in in his tweets. I, I sort of think that the odds of Mueller being fired are pretty high. The fact that Trump is impulsive and that this this is something that obsesses him he 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 is obsessed by it. Although he'd have to
2: get uh, he'd have to get Rosenstein to That's do it, right. and Rosenstein obviously was a, some played some role. We didn't, we're not quite sure where exactly it fits in terms of what Rosenstein knew and didn't know. Uh, but in, he played some role in James Comey's firing he wrote the, the the letter that Sessions cited repeatedly and that the president kind of cited until he came up until he said he had other reasons for doing it. Rosenstein was asked about who asked him to author that letter. This is why we knew the president was under investigation. There were lots of signs before the post piece but Rosenstein was asked in testimony this week who asked him to, sign, uh, to write the letter about Comey and he said he couldn't answer because there was an ongoing investigation so obviously if there's an ongoing investigation about that, that's about obstruction and why Comey was fired and if it had a relationship Wait. to ending this ending the
0: investigation so to, to fire Mueller, he has to get rosenstein to do it yeah. yeah and then so so let's let's just play out the the crazy scenario so rosenstein refuses S- saturday night massacre then you it, just keep firing you keep people firing until until you find find a robert bork until yeah. you find somebody okay. who will carry it out for you i think every story in the trump administration is has this murder on the orient express quality to it <laughs> So my two favorite Virginians are here with me. You guys are the most Virginian Virginians I know, which m- suggests I don't really know a lot of Virginians. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. If John, yeah, John, who does not live in Virginia, and Jamel, who does not live in Virginia at the moment, at least, are my two favorite Virginians. In any case, there was a gubernatorial primary in Virginia on Tuesday. But we Tuesday. have links there. You have deep, deep ties, deep ties. Lieutenant Governor Ralph Northam won over Tom Perriello. I can never pronounce his name. It's, it is Cariello yeah. in the Democratic primary. And then Ed Gillespie, who is a former gubernatorial candidate and a uh, George W. Bush era Republican official, barely, barely won a low turnout Republican primary over a um, Confederate monument loving Trump loving blowhard named Corey Stewart. The turnout in the Democratic primary was vastly higher than that in the Republican primary in Jamel is that in fact dispositively great news.
1: I think it is. I mean, so there have not actually been that many democratic gubernatorial primaries in Virginia recent Virginia history. So you really look at, it at 2009 and and where turnout was about 300,000 uh, or so, but the general picture for Virginia, you know, off-year elections, which always happen the year after presidential election is that the out-of-power party performs well. Um this happened in 2005. Um, when Tim Kaine was elected, it happened in 2001 when Mark Warner was elected, it happened in 1997 when Jimmy Gilmore was elected. It's kind of a recurring pattern. And for listeners who don't know, Virginia governors cannot serve two consecutive terms, which is why every four uh, years there's a different dude in there. Um, that that pattern would uh, would suggest that Democrats are in kind of a decent – that the, the playing field is Good. It's decent for Democrats to begin with. There is the fact of massive anti-Trump energy um, nationwide for Democrats. So there's that. Uh, And so those two things which contributed to the high turnout, I think, signal uh, a pretty good landscape for them. In the fall. And there's also just Virginia's demographic transformation, which has happened very rapidly in a way that I don't think people fully appreciate, which I think has a impact on what's happening in the Virginia Republican Party, right? In 2004, George W. Bush won Virginia, I think fifty-five percent to forty-four percent for John Kerry. It was a pretty decisive victory over Democrats in the state. But since 2009, when Bob McDonnell, Kanchanelli, and Mark Open—I think it was Mark Openchain, perhaps not—I forget who was lieutenant governor—Bill uh, Bill Bowling, when they won the statewide ticket in 2009. Since then, Democrats have won every single statewide election in Virginia. Hillary Clinton won Virginia by a comfortable margin last year. The state uh, is increasingly um, dominated politically. Uh, at least from the statewide level, by uh, in the south side of this of the state, African American voters, sort of white liberal college educated voters, in the in Northern Virginia, it's immigrants, uh, Latinos, uh, again white college educated voters, and increasingly moderate Republicans who have traditionally been kind of the force in the Virginia Republican Party becoming Democrats. I mean, what's interesting about the the turnout in the GOP primary on Tuesday is that it pr- had proportionally less turnout in Northern Virginia than than it typically does. And that could be just simply attributed to the fact that people who would have called themselves Republicans a couple years ago now call themselves Democrats. When you add that next to the national mood, next to the sort of the patterns in Virginian politics and this high turnout and the immediate unity within the Democratic primary field, Tom Perriello conceded early and pledged his full support to Northam. Add that all together and you're looking it's looking like a good fall for Democrats. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about on the Republican side, but I well, let's let's do that. So Ed Gillespie, John, yeah. one. Ed Gillespie I mean, is the thing that's
2: interesting about Gillespie and everything uh, Jamel pointed out about the changes in Virginia, of course, uh, mirror the changes in the country, that the western part, the rural part of Virginia is uh, strongly pro Trump, strongly Republican. There's a you know, there are coal miners in Virginia. And the question is. Ed Gillespie is a member of what Donald Trump would call the swamp. I mean, he is a Republican operative who is a lobbyist and has been in the George W. Bush administration, which President uh, Trump campaigned against um, in a number of different ways. And so the challenge for Ed Gillespie is, let's say, on the coal question. You know, as he campaigns, what does he – when he goes into coal country, does he say – we're bringing your jobs back or does he recognize what a lot of Republicans will tell you privately, which is, you know, coal is a mature business. Um, the, we cannot save coal jobs. We can you know, there are places in Virginia, like other areas in coal country where entire towns are dying because of the coal business. So there is a huge pull on compassion. So you obviously don't want to say anything that doesn't suggest that you don't care for these kinds of voters, but the message that you would expect Uh, Ed Gillespie to put forward on an issue like coal is different than the one President President Trump is putting forward, which is essentially we can not only bring these jobs back but grow them. He has to try to balance the reality of the voters in Virginia, the reality of just policy with the promises and the rhetoric of the guy at the top of the ticket.
0: Jamel, what do you make of the rise of Corey Stewart and the fact that this kind of neo-Confederate just – you know, very loud bullying character got as far as he did. I mean, is this does it I mean, is it won. Should we, yeah almost <laughs> one? I mean, is it is it encouraging that he didn't win, and that the Gillespie will now kind of move away from it because that's the only way he's going to win? Or is it is it does this reflect a, a kind of Trumpism rampant elsewhere?
1: I don't I don't think this is encouraging at all. My my perspective is it is similar to what my perspective would have been had Hillary Clinton become president last fall, which is to say. It is – in the interest of not having um, a major party nominee in Virginia essentially running as um, a white nationalist, in the interest of not having that, I'm glad Gillespie won. I think that's a good outcome. But the fact of the matter is is that Gillespie won by 4,700 votes. Uh, in that had the weather been slightly different on Tuesday, Corey Stewart would probably be the Republican. What nominee. weather would have gotten? Corey I don't F- know. Some uh, some rain in northern Virginia, right? Okay. Like uh, some rain in the Richmond suburbs. Uh. And there you go. That's that's it. At those kinds of margins, it's it's essentially random, right? Stewart's near success um, after being behind in the polls by 10, 20, 30 points for most of the season, having an underfunded campaign. I mean he was not – by any metric a strong candidate, it, it signals two things. The first is that even in Virginia, which is, again, a pretty moderate state, Trump has awakened something, unleashed something in Republican voters that uh, they want. They want to see in politics, and Stewart delivered that. And his mix of uh, aggressive anti-immigrant rhetoric defense of Confederate monuments, which I think ties into something that's happening, I think, in conservative politics generally, which is this sort of reactionary, the liberals don't like it, therefore we love it kind of thing. I'm not sure how many of these voters even cared all that much about the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville, for example, but now they care quite a bit. It's on the political radar. Duart, you know, actively primed people's racial resentments. That stuff appeals to a substantial portion of the Virginia Republican um, primary electorate, at least. And what that means is that I think Gillespie will have an even tighter rope to walk. Those people were 42.5% of the total vote. Um, He'll have to sort of respond to them in some way, shape, or form. And in the closing days of this primary race, Gillespie was running ads promising that he'll defend Confederate monuments, right? That it's already kind of in it's already kind of there. I think something similar is happening to the country. It's not good for the country. And I think that's what Stewart sort of presages for Virginia politics. And the particular problem for Virginia politics is that the state's legislature is heavily gerrymandered rural Virginia is is not just it's not just malapportionment, but like very much overrepresented in a way that I don't think you would design you would you would if you were designing the state's districts and constitution now, you would probably nick that out because it's just not a good idea. This chunk of Virginia effectively controls the General Assembly. And it, it's it's left the state is now kind of stuck in gridlock and it's left the state in gridlock and be kind of divergent the, the, the these two Virginias that are, are quickly Diverging on, a, on 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 any number of lines, it's not good. It's not good for the state. It's not good for the state's politics, um, and I expect to see uh, quite a bit more of it.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're um, sitting on your porch waiting in Danville for the Danville train, John Dickerson, what we'd be chattering about as you have some moonshine? i will be chattering about Virgil Kane. <sighs>
2: So this week in Whistle Whistlestop, I did uh, the last time we had a president testify before Congress, which was um, Gerald Ford. But the more interesting one that I should have done but didn't have the time to do but we will do perhaps one day is the reason um, Abraham Lincoln testified before Congress. And I'm part of what I'm relying on here is from a piece that Mark Powell, J. Mark Powell wrote in The Washington Examiner. So the reason Lincoln had to testify is because part of his State of the Union was leaked in 1862, which is actually in December of 1861, which is amazing. First of all, that anybody would care about a State of the Union being leaked. Um, basically, that excerpts of the State of the Union appeared in the New York Herald, and that was a huge political event that a leak would show up. And so there was a congressional inquiry that have the House Judiciary Committee investigated this. And the reason it was investigated is that the New York Tribune, which is the rival of the Herald, suggested that this guy named Henry um, Wickhoff got his information, there was a piece in the Tribune that, that said that Wickoff had gotten his information from, quote, members of the president's own family, which put the spotlight on Mary Todd. And why would Mary Todd have been uh, in league with uh, the newspapers? Because she had refurbished the White House and had basically blown her budget. And so the uh, the rumor was that she had basically leaked contents of the State of the Union, to the paper in exchange for money that she would use to then decorate the house. In the middle of all this, both of Lincoln's sons get typhoid fever. One of them dies. Anyway, Lincoln goes up to the House Judiciary Committee, testifies in secret, alas, but basically says, no, my wife uh, wasn't the leaker, and it kind of goes away because there's like other important stuff going on,
0: like the coming war, but that's... Do, like do, what, kind of a what crazy is, story. Does history say that she actually got money? No,
2: they don't know. History I mean, doesn't know. History doesn't know. They, there is a. Um, there was a. They, there's another branch of this story, which is basically they come up with a fake story about where this came from, um, where the leak came from, which, which. Um, Uh, kind of just basically gave everybody a reason this guy named john watt who was the white house gardener confessed to having leaked the information but it seemed to everyone at the time or at least in history to think that watt's confession was totally made up but so that it was some but something everybody could blame and then watt ends up and going and gets a job in the patent office which takes care of him i mean it's a relatively cushy job so watt may have just been the fall man to to uh, take advantage and in the end she may not have – I mean, she has, was not – it was not a full exoneration. She may very well have been
1: involved.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Jamel, what's your chatter?
1: This is a hard one because I've, I've watched a lot of movies and read a lot of books over the past, like – I mean, since I've last been on and had a chance to do a cocktail chatter. And I'm always tied between uh, choosing a serious book, and I just read actually a very serious and very good book, or uh, choosing a movie. Um, uh, but I don't talk about movies as much as I'd like to, so I'm going to choose a movie. One of the movies I've recently watched, um, first time viewing, like Kira Kurosawa's 1948 Drunken Angel, which is sort of, I feel like, the beginning or, or one of the beginnings of his classic period that people recognize. Um, and it's the first of his what would become 16 collaborations with Toshiro Mifune, who is sort of one of the great actors of mid-century Japanese cinema. The story uh, of Drunken Angel or the plot is is um, Mifune plays a young Yakuza who is shot. Uh, He's treated by a doctor. The doctor discovers that he has tuberculosis, and the doctor uh, basically tries to get him to take this treatment for tuberculosis, but Mifune is trying to navigate the Yakuza. The plot is about this sort of attempt, this relationship between Mifune and the doctor, played by uh, Takashi Shimura, who is another kind of player in Kurosawa's films and who is often... uh, very understated, but in this, in this, had kind of a very forceful role, and is very, very good. Their relationship, their interplay, uh, how is sort of life uh, spirals out of control. It's uh, it's basically a noir. It takes place in post-war Tokyo. Has a great kind of like dark, swampy aesthetic to it, and it is it's just like a great it's a great little drama, and it sort of I think captures. Um, what makes kurosawa distinctive which is his deep interest in individuals in a in a society that is often portrayed as quite conformist and that his his characters aren't just they're just sort of they are full kind of complex people in a way that you don't always see even in even in the best films so drunken angel i think it's on uh, itunes you could probably rent it on itunes it's very good and uh, you should watch it All right. My chatter
0: is about August 21st of this year. There has not been a full total eclipse of the sun in the United States that's a cross-country solar eclipse. Since 1918, there's not going to be another one in our lifetime. It's the first uh, total solar eclipse in in any part of the United States for 40 years. Um, It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime astronomical experience. It is impossible now to get a Hotel Room for Love or Money across the Path of Totality, which is this narrow band where you'll have a total eclipse on August 21st. The eclipse starts in northwestern Oregon and sort of sweeps across the country and crosses out in Charleston, South Carolina. And Atlas Obscura is doing a festival in eastern Oregon in the high desert of eastern Oregon, the place that is most likely to have clear weather on that day. And we're going to have scientists and musicians, Sun Ra's orchestra is coming to play under the stars. We're going to do astronomical photography. We're going to do interactive science exhibits. And then we're all going to watch this once in a lifetime experience of, of celestial wonder. And so I would urge you if you have a time on August 21st, and if you want to have a weekend in Oregon to come out and join us for the total eclipse festival, And you can go to atlasobscura.com slash eclipse and see it. Finally, before we go, there's another Slate podcast that I want to just say a word about, which is uh, Talking Points. Isaac – oh, excuse me. <laughs> That's not what it's called. That's the big, bold thing, which is like Talking Points. Talk about this. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> message just, George, I Message care. I care. I just George W. Bushed it. <laughs> uh, you can leave that <laughs> Herbert, in if you want. Herbert Walker Bush. <laughs> uh, the actual name of the podcast is not Talking Points. It's I Have to Ask. It's Isaac Chotner's podcast, which is an interview podcast. It's a great podcast. I really, really like this podcast. Um, he does – deep interviews with notable folks he's done chuck schumer he just did george saunders i haven't listened to that yet um, i want to listen to that andrew sullivan and chris hayes and you can listen at slate.com ask for isaac's podcast he's a he's a very good interviewer that's our show for today the Gabfest is produced by jocelyn frank our intern is kevin townsend steve lichtai is executive producer of slate podcasts andy bowers presides over Panoply Network, please subscribe to the GabFest and Apple Podcasts and review and rate the show. Please do that. For John Dickerson and our wonderful guest Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
3: Hello and welcome to Slate's Trump Care Tracker. Uh, this is a new podcast where we'll be talking about the Republican Party's screwball quest to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. I'm Jordan Weissman, Slate's business and economics correspondent, and I'll be joined. Every Monday, Wednesday and Friday by our intrepid political reporter Jim Newell, who spends most of his time these days sort of loitering around Congress, trying to pry answers out of politicians about health care. It's a truly thankless job, but we are very, very grateful for his service. And we're even more grateful that he's managed to join us today from a phone booth on Capitol Hill, which has sort of been consumed with the very, very tragic shooting of Congressman Steve Scalise in Virginia. Virginia, an awful, awful event today. Jim, thanks for managing to escape all that craziness and come talk policy with me.
4: It's a a bit of a frenzied day, but uh, happy to get back on topic here.
3: So, the big story right now about the Obamacare appeal is how it's all sort of happening in secret. There is a group of Senate Republicans writing the legislation. They may be almost done with it for all we know, and they're not making it public. Mitch McConnell is planning to pass it off to the Congressional Budget Office and not tell voters what's actually in it, not release the text. And it seems like, so far, this is sort of working as a legislative strategist, I feel it is. And Jim, I'm, I'm curious your take. It, it seems like this might be kind of a canny move from the canniest of Senate leaders we've seen in a while.
4: Yeah, so about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, I started feeling like I didn't really have a handle on where the Senate health care debate was going. And so that brought up all my insecurities about how I was just a bad reporter and it was all my (laughs) fault. I didn't know what was going on. But it's not. Everyone feels the same way. No one really knows what's happening. What happens on an average day in the Senate is there's this working group, which is officially 13 members and very famously all men. But they've opened it up to pretty much any member of the conference who wants to go in. So they go into a room, they chit chat for a little while, who knows what decisions they're making, and then they come out and they're very tight lipped. They're very disciplined. You can't just find, as you can in the house, you know, some member who likes to talk more than they should, unfortunately. So it's going along, and then no one really has a feel for where this is, but you can sort of get an indication of how far along in the process they are. And it seems like they're very far. It seems like they have everyone on board with some of the trickier components, even some who were against rolling back the Medicaid expansion now seem to be on board with that, and they're just discussing the timing of it. And... Just the process throughout this, there have been no hearings. It's not going through the committee process. It's not going through the help or the uh, finance committees. Mitch McConnell has prepared for what's called a rule 14, where you can take a bill straight to the floor without it having to go through committee. And as you're saying, they're going to send whatever draft bill they have. They're just finishing off the language now, but who knows how many more sticking points remain. And when they send it, it'll take about two weeks for CBO to score it. No one knows if they're going to release it to the public while CBO is scoring it. And there was an article about this the other day when when that news was broken from an unnamed senior GOP aide saying why they were not going to release it to the public. And the aide said, we're not stupid.
3: Yeah, that was it was a pretty remarkable moment, right?
4: (laughs) Yeah. And what you know, I don't know who that aide was, but it may very well have been someone in McConnell's office. And it just rung to me as such a mcconnell office thing because they you know they really do think they're geniuses and they are very savvy legislators they don't really get rattled by these short-term concerns like oh we're going to vote on a bill without letting anyone in the public see it there's there's some sort of arrogance you know like oh it'd be stupid to do that because then it would just impede our progress and they're probably right but it's also frustrating
3: you know, from a purely tactical perspective, it seems like they're correct. People have looked at this. Uh, journalists have been tracking the nightly news coverage and healthcare has basically dropped off of TV. It's just it, And if it's not on TV, it's not really in the news as far as the broader public's concerned.
4: Yeah. And it's not, you know, top of the fold in newspapers, anything like that. I've heard from, you know, some staffers on the Hill that the phone lines are not being jammed the way they were uh, ahead of the House bill, that the first time that failed, I don't think people understand the urgency of it, and we don't know specifically too how close they are, of course. But I, like we can pick up on cues, like they really are just going through the final details. Yeah, you're so sort was, of
3: reading the vapors or something. <laughs> you're inhaling yeah, the vapors. they were are, talking about earlier yeah. this
4: week that they might have the language complete, you know, by Monday night. And it looks like that's been set back a little bit, but you know, they're, they're still aspirationally hoping to have this done by the end of June. Yeah. It'll probably be more like July. They're really just not telling anyone what's going on
3: here. Yeah. And what's, what's kind of fascinating about this is that if you remember the Obamacare debates from you know, 2009, 2010, the idea that Democrats were somehow crafting this bill in secret and weren't being uh, transparent about it was actually a pretty potent charge. And it was became kind of a rallying cry for conservatives. And the fact that Obamacare was even in the news was sort of a sign that it wasn't true. You know, we're learning is that obviously the bill was being crafted enough in public that it was able to constantly be part of the news cycle. And now Republicans have realized is if they actually craft it in secret, then the bill will fall off everybody's radar. And that allows them to kind of just cut whatever deals they need to out of the media scrutiny. And that seems to be the only way that they can get some sort of consensus among among yeah. their, themselves. So that brings up a question I, I have for you, Jim, which is, how much time do you think the public might actually have to see this bill before it's voted upon? How much of kind of a, a, a quick stealth strike can Mitch McConnell orchestrate here to get this through his chamber?
4: Well, that sort of depends on whether this current situation of hiding the bill totally is tenable, which maybe if you have Mitch McConnell and you have the will to see something that you get a lot of short-term criticism for through, then maybe they'll do that. But they could submit the bill, finish writing the bill, submit to CBO, get the score back in a couple of weeks. Then they could put the bill on the calendar. Then it has to go through three days of procedural time for the bill to ripen. And there will be a, a chance to offer amendments. But... It's unclear how many of those amendments will be uh, accepted or allowed by the majority leaders. So they could do it if you got a CBO score back and you need a CBO score for the Senate bill, which you didn't need the House bill because it has to comply with reconciliation rules. You could get that back in the beginning of the week and then possibly vote it out by the end of the week. I'm not sure how long that will work because I think this is the problem with the secrecy. You're not going to get away with it for very long. If you pass the bill, I mean, maybe you keep it secret and that prevents some of your members from being swayed too much by public opinion before they vote. But they're going to have to live with this bill for a very long time. So that's why I wonder if they really are going to go through um, this incredibly secretive process or if that's going to change because they know, well, we're going to have to live with it anyway. So we might as well just take our shots now.
3: There's also the fact that they have to craft a final bill with the House. If the Senate passes something, they have to then iron out the differences with the House bill and then take a final oh, vote. Oh, yeah. And so people will get a chance to see that legislation as well. That gives us uh, some opportunity for another public airing, though it's not clear how secretive that could yeah. be as well.
4: And even if that didn't go anywhere, which, you know, I think if they got to the point where they're at reconciliation, the momentum would be we have to finish this. But even if the Senate just votes on it, it didn't become everything. It's still a vote they would have to live with for a very long time. Yeah. And
3: so I think this is a good moment to talk about one of the bits of news that has leaked out of this committee, which is one of the few substantive policy decisions that seems to be made, which is that. Republicans have decided they're going to kill Medicaid or the Medicaid expansion, but they're going to do it very slowly. And this seems to be the big compromise that they've come up with to get conservatives and moderates on board together. There was this question for a while over whether or not moderate Republicans from states that expanded Medicaid under Obamacare would be willing to undo that. People like Shelley Moore Capito, for instance, in West Virginia, Dean Heller in Nevada. And now what they're saying is we're okay with killing the expansion, but we want to do it over seven years. We want to wind it down. And Mitch McConnell is talking about doing it over three years. And from a policy perspective, it's not a whole bunch of difference. In the end, you're still ending the expansion. And because some states um, will actually automatically terminate it the second any of the funding decreases, it means that in places like Michigan, you're, you're killing the expansion immediately, no matter what. So, I'm wondering if what the logic is here politically, is it just to kind of put this off into the future where they won't be blamed for it? Or do you think that these senators feel like there is a substantive difference here in what's happening?
4: I think they're looking for some way to come around to voting for the bill. And I think they also, if, if a lot of these senators are from expansion states, maybe they're hearing from their governors. Well, a lot of the governors like John Kasich in Ohio or uh, Brian Sandoval in Nevada, they don't want any of this to happen anyway, necessarily. Yeah, But they they do think maybe if we can give them a little more time to prepare for when it expires, that maybe that's, you know, a helpful way that they can come around to this. You know, we know this detail about the seven year phase out, but we don't know the specifics of what that really means. Because as you mentioned, the way the Medicaid expansion works now is that new enrollees, the federal government makes 90% of the payments, their matching percentage. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of this phase out It's not really clear yet. Does that go down to, you know, 80% one year, 70% the next year? Just do something like that? That's something I've heard members saying. But, you know, who knows what states, if you go down from 90 to 80 or something, what states are still going to want that? Is that enough for them to all end it right away anyway? Or there's just a lot of questions that, about what that phase out really means.
3: Yeah. And it's it's hard to predict because, again, it comes down to the behaviors of different state legislatures, different governors. But it, it does seem like a little bit of a fig leaf, which speaks, again, to the kind of the essence of this bill from the legislative process that they're using to craft it to the actual substance, which is just it's designed to kind of pull the wool over people's eyes and you don't get to know it's in it before it's done. And then it's designed to sort of unfurl slowly so you don't even realize what's happening as a result of it. It's sort of meant to uh, create plausible deniability.
4: Yeah. And I was talking to Shelley Moore Capito from yeah. West Virginia, who is one of the most hesitant to get rid of the Medicaid expansion because of what it's done for her state. She was saying, I wish you would stop calling it a phase out, it's a transition.
3: <laughs> oh, it's like, are you serious? So- that's the line she's going to take on the campaign trail next time. It's like, listen, I yeah. just transitioned you out of your Medicaid yeah. care. I didn't yeah, phase out your care. To a
4: world where there is no Medicaid expansion, and I think that's something that that's sort of the, the structure of this bill. Because not only are they going to wind down the Medicaid expansion, then they're going to transition to a new system of per capita cap. So that's sort of a fig leaf that's built in there. You know, we're just taking off what was added to Medicaid in recent years. So we're moving to a new system, and granted, that new system will be even worse. But I don't know. I think that's just. Something that they're they're trying to work out.
3: How can we end Medicaid as you know it? You know, how can we kill it as softly as possible?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's you know, if you have a three year, five year, seven year phase out, I, they it's a phase out. It'll be gone. I, I think they're just looking for some way to get around on this.
3: That wraps things up for this first edition of the Trump Care Tracker, Jim. It was awesome talking to you.
4: Yeah, no, this was fun. Maybe uh, in some of these podcasts I will be recording from a studio, not a phone booth on Skype.
3: So that's our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'd love to hear from you. Either way, love it, hate it, give us your feedback. If you'd like to uh, get in touch with us or suggest topics that we should talk about in the future, things that are confusing you about this this whole legislative push, just healthcare topics in general, you you'd like to learn a little bit more about, please write to us at TrumpCareTracker at slate dot com. Again, TrumpCareTracker at slate dot com. Uh, this podcast is produced by June Thomas, and we are so thankful that you've been listening. We'll be back with
4: you on Friday.